Welcome back to another edition of the Disney Dish Podcast with Jim Hill. It's me, Len Testa, and this is another show for April of 2018. Welcome back, everyone. It's been a good month so far for everyone, I hope. In addition to me, we have, as always, one Mr. Jim Hill on the show. Jim, how's it going? I am doing fine, Len. Thank you for asking. And yes, it only snowed twice yesterday. So again, we are really hopeful that April will be the month that, you know. <laughs> Winter goes away. Yeah, twice. Twice in one day in, in April. Twitch. Okay. <laughs> All right, James. Going back to our last show, we had some news about the Disney Skyliner that you had uncovered about potential capacity concerns related to the Skyliner's use because with the current route that the Skyliner is on, you're basically adding another 6,700 hotel rooms to the 4,600 hotel rooms that are already going through the International Gateway to exit Epcot at night. But you've now learned more about this, right? Yeah, well, I, again, I kept hammering on my sources. And the interesting thing is that Initially, one of the things that Disney used to justify this project is, well, hell, we had a Skyway. We had a Skyway in Disneyland that operated from 56 through 94, and we had a Skyway that operated at Walt Disney World from 71 to 99. So, yeah, we have all sorts of experience with this. And it's like, which isn't really true, because remember, the old Skyway system, you either got on at Fantasyland and you went across the park and got off at Tomorrowland or vice versa, Tomorrowland to Fantasyland Station, two stops. And right. kind of a self-regulating line because it just, it, you know, uh, but here you're talking about multiple points. You're talking about four separate entry and exit points. We've got the station outside of Disney's Hollywood studio, the station mm -hmm. between Pop Century and Art of Animation, station at the, the Riviera Resort, which is also a guest from the Caribbean beach. You're going to walk over and... So and let me pause you there for one second. You, mm -hmm. you think there's only going to be one station at Caribbean beach? Because that place is huge. You can't walk from one end to the other. You don't think there's going to be two stations? If you look at the actual art for the overhead plan that shows the route, it's just one station, Len. So they must be putting it right in the middle then because the Riviera is, I think, on the far south side of the Caribbean Beach property. You would not want people walking from the north side. I just assume there's going to be two. Mm, huh. Okay. All right. Go, no. ahead. Go ahead. So anyway, and finally, the station right at International Gateway. And this is the nightmare scenario that was spun out to me. All right, so picture this. It's the summer of 2019. Galaxy's okay. Edge has just opened to the public. Ratatouille, and again, brand new big ride for Epcot, is in soft opening mode. In France, right by International Gateway. There we go. And we have the Illuminations Window on the World show, which has been in development forever, is finally being presented nightly at World Showcase Lagoon. So, all right, picture this. Day starts with a large number of guests who are staying off property, but they still have the multi-day, okay. multi-park passes, and but they park their cars over at Hollywood Studios because, of course, they won't experience Galaxy's Edge. Okay. So picture this. A good portion of those, that group of guests, in the late afternoon, decide to take the Skyliner over to Epcot so they can then experience Ratatouille, grab dinner at a restaurant that they booked six months in advance, and then stake a spot out for Illumination's window in the world. Um, mm -hmm. It's now 9.15. Windows of the World is over. And these people now, they've just finished watching Epcot's big show. And so they want to get back to 
their cars, which remember are parked at the Hollywood Studios. And you know, said, so get back to the Rothside Hotel. And so they go to the International Gateway. Because they're there. They just watched Illuminations That's there. right. And right? so okay. they now encounter this giant crowd of people. They have the, all of these people who are trying to get back to their rooms at the Riviera mm-hmm. Resort, Pop Century, and Art of Animation. They also come up against all of these people who are at Epcot who have now decided, hey, I want to go over to Disney's Hollywood Studios, which, because Galaxy's Edge is just opened, and it's, it's huge. It's going to be open later. It's, it's going to be, be open, open later. God, I didn't even think of this. Yes. Yeah. And if you want to really oh. want to stress that how potentially bad this could get, remember, we still have that Mary Poppins Returns meet and greet that's supposed to go oh, into... Th- yeah, let's let's put it in the UK. Sure, why so, not? <laughs> again, so you have these two new attractions, bookending, and, and in fact, that's the thing that my source was saying, that's a nightmare. Somebody sitting in their hotel room will go, hey, look at the map. The Skyway dumps off right between France and UK, and that's got Ratatouille, that's got the Mary Poppins Returns. Oh, we gotta do we, this. We can see illuminations from there, we'll get something to eat in France, <sighs> you know, we'll grab a glass of wine it'll be super fabulous oh my god i didn't even think of that yeah you've got guys in ops right now who are waving the flag frantically because we're 14 months out and it's one of these situations where it's like guys we absolutely have to do something here well what are they going to do there i mean the international gateway itself is what 20 yards wide and it's so much worse len because remember that spot off of the bridge in france that they use to do the dessert parties for corporate groups and weddings and that sort of thing yeah Mm -hmm. all right people pay big bucks years in advance to be able to watch illuminations from there and so the lighting is deliberately terrible in that spot because again you don't want the people who paid big bucks to eat their tiny cupcakes to hey i had a terrible viewing experience give me my money back so one of the people who's deciding how this all goes down are the guys who book the corporate groups and the events and it's like no 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 you're not going to ruin our dough by expanding that walkway or bumping up the light levels and they can't build out into the waterway because that's how the dessert party boats get into Epcot to see illuminations. And they, they're not going to cut that revenue stream either. No. All right. Now, interesting little bend on this is that one of the ideas that's now being floated as a way to maybe alleviate the situation is the notion of putting a popular attraction on the other side of World Showcase Lagoon, which we've talked about this coming off the table. It's evidently back on. The Grand Fiesta Tour starring the Three Caballeros Evidently, the idea of, of doing the Coco overlay there is being resurrected, revisited. But Coco did not do that well domestically, James. It's well, not that big of an it. But that's what's fascinating, okay? If you actually drill down into the numbers. Yeah, if you're going strictly domestically, out of the 19 movies that Pixar has released since you know, they started doing features back in November of 1995, Coco only made $209 million in the United States. So it's, it's literally 13th on that list. In fact... And what's funny is if you actually go over to Box Office Mojo and look at all the movies that were released in 2017 domestically, it's also 13th mm-hmm. on that list, which I, I think is a little weird. Mm-hmm. On the Our other hand, if you take overseas numbers, totally different storyline. Really? Coco overseas sold $584.9 million worth of tickets, which puts it its second only to Toy Story 3, which is the, the top earner overseas 
ever for Pixar, $651 million overseas. So, wow. So the Imagineers with this info in hand have gone to Walt Disney World management and said, you know, guys, I mean, you look at these numbers. And if you put in domestic and you put in international, mm-hmm. you now, the top five films of all time for Pixar, number one is Toy Story. That's a, a billion six. Finding Dory is a billion two. Finding Nemo is nine hundred forty million. Inside Out is eight hundred fifty-seven million. And there, in the number five position, is Coco with seven hundred ninety-four million worldwide. And now, remember, getting back to our old pal Bob Chapek, who's now the chairman of Parks, Experiences, and Consumer Products. You got to remember what he said at the D23 Expo back in July of 2017, which is Mm -hmm. what he said he wanted to make Epcot more Disney, timeless, relevant, family friendly. When you look at his actual job title now, Len, you go to the Disney Mm -hmm. Corporate Communications page, as of March of 2018, his job now is to oversee the global hub where Disney's stories, characters, and franchises come to life. And in that situation, do you think a guy is going to get behind a franchise? You know, face it, Three Caballeros isn't even a franchise, all right? It's a set of characters from a film from the Warriors, what, 42, 43? Yeah. In fact, what's kind of interesting is that if you if you get cold-blooded about it, Nemo is already well represented. I mean, the seas with Nemo and friends. Yeah, the seas has a bunch of stuff on right it. There. Yeah. and Toy Story too. Toy Story just has its own land in the in the studios. Just about. So that leaves Coco and Inside Out, and, and it, just so you know, Len, the Inside Out themed redo of Imagination, I'm told, isn't dead. Supposedly, at this point, because obviously there was suddenly this giant Marvel push, which again has yeah. is, is gotten even crazier with what just happened with Black Panther. What's now planned is evidently an Imagination redo will be addressed after Walt Disney World's 50th anniversary, but they keep going back and forth between do we do the Inside Out characters? In Imagination. In the, well, is it in the ride? Do we do oh, redo okay. all of Journey into Your Imagination with Figment, or do we just do a 3D movie? As for Grand Fiesta with Coco, I was told that they were waiting for the final Blu-ray DVD and digital download sales figures to come in. And Mm -hmm. I just now, before we started recording, I went over to Media Play News. And back on March 8th, they reported that Coco easily took the number one spot on the video scan first alert sales chart, which tracks combined uh, DVD and Blu-ray unit sales and the dedicated Blu-ray sales chart. Meanwhile, over at the numbers website, they've got estimated sales for Coco. Domestically DVD, they they sold 7.2 million worth of units, and Blu-ray, on the other hand, did uh, more than three times that business. It was 25.8 million worth of Blu-ray sales. Now, the problem is, again, I apologize, I literally just grabbed these numbers. I don't know if that's strong enough to be the sort of the deciding factor when it comes right. to Walt Disney World management. And- and the fact that it's if those numbers if those numbers were reversed on the international and domestic domestic box office, yeah. they'd have a stronger case. But the fact is that only twenty percent of visitors to Walt Disney World are international. But Jim, let me ask you mm-hmm. ask you this question: mm-hmm. When is Guardians of the Galaxy supposed to open in Epcot? It's not twenty nineteen. It's not next year. No, and in fact, I keep being told that even two thousand twenty is optimistic. Okay. and part of the issue there is that Guardians of the Galaxy 3 doesn't start shooting till next year. I got it. No, no, no. So here's what I was thinking about. So if you think of Epcot 
the shape of Epcot is roughly a sheet of paper, yep. right? Mm-hmm. All of the uh, international gateways up in the upper right-hand corner, all of the new things are also in the upper right-hand corner. Oh, the yeah. Remy ride in France, the Mary Poppins experience in the UK, and then Illuminations is sort of like on that top edge yep. of the paper as well. If Guardians would have opened in 2019, you would have had something literally in the opposite corner of the park that could draw people out. And not coincidentally, Jim, but if they're already at the front of the park, you could offer them buses back over to the studios or to, <laughs> no, no, to that, Caribbean. Right? I mean, you could. That's right? it, exactly. But to be honest, when you talk with folks at Epcot, kind of cringe about that. What they basically say is, look, we had a really wet spring and Star Wars Galaxy's Edge is the priority. Yeah, they have to get that done. Yeah. I, yeah. Literally, if you could swing a hammer yeah. in Central Florida right now, you're probably working on that project. Yeah. Or if you know what a hammer looks like. Or you can spell hammer. You've, you've, you're in. You're, you're, in. you're, you're, hired. you're hired. Yeah. And that's, Here's your union card. And the, <laughs> that's the saddest part of it. If they, if oh, they could throw bodies at the Guardians of the Galaxy indoor coaster, they would. Yeah. But they just can't. But they've got that. They've got the two resorts going up at Caribbean Beach and Coronado Springs. Those are revenue generators. Mm-hmm. I don't think the roadway construction will ever end yeah. in, in the Reedy Creek Improvement District. So yeah, if something like a ride, which doesn't generate revenue directly and doesn't get people from their cars to the parks where they can spend money, I think that'd be a lower priority for Disney. I understand that. Just to recap here, that remember when prior to the opening of Wizarding World Diagon Alley, there were all these concerns about getting to the Hogwarts Express and shuttling people back and forth between the two parks. Mm-hmm. And that sorted itself out. But again, key differences, you look at King's Crossing, they have a giant queue. And, and when yeah. you look at, you know, you're coming out of Hogsmeade and heading over to Diagon Alley, it's hidden from sight, but there is in fact a giant queue hidden back there. And there's just not the place of the the room to do that with the international gateway when it comes to the skyliner and then let alone the limited capacity of these things so i just feel bad for you len because you living in the touring plants world have got to be the ones to figure out what do you tell people we've already put warnings in for the 2019 edition of the book so we're writing it now okay or obviously there'll be people who are buying the 2019 edition of the book in you know august of 2019 mm-hmm And so we have to anticipate what these problems are likely to be for anyone who is visiting Epcot and then trying to leave. So in our in our session on Epcot, where we tell people how to get out of the park after it closes, that's uh, it's definitely a set of warnings that we have to have, and it's something we'll update in the Kindle version of the book as we learn more and more about it. It, it, It's kind of funny though, because you know when I'm writing right now for 2019, there's so many things that you just don't know. Like we literally don't know the names of the Galaxy's Edge rides. Mm -hmm. (laughs) In fact, it's so funny because and they are being so deliberate about it. In fact, if you go over to Central Shops right now, they are unloading a lot of the animatronic stormtroopers that are going to be used in yeah, the yeah. the resistance ride and again but they're coming out of boxes that literally have alcatraz on the outside alcatraz of it. yeah, yeah they're yeah. not even telling the employees what the name of this thing is so uh, yeah all right well give them time we'll go they'll eventually share we hope uh, hopefully hopefully not it's not the day before it opens <laughs> jim uh, before we get started today on our show that is a chronological disneyland follow-up i want to talk a little bit about a couple of pieces of news that i found interesting uh this week One of them is that Disney has expanded again its minivan service going to the Orlando airport. Remember we talked a couple of weeks ago about how due to guest demand, Disney was now taking guests from their Disney hotels to the airport. And this was an expansion of their minivan service 
that they were using with Lyft. You remember that, right, Jim? Yep. The news now is that they will accommodate parties larger than three and all of their suitcases. So here's the scenario that Disney just came out and said that they would not support. Before, if you were a party of more than three people, so family of four, family of five, all the way up to seven, Disney was restricting you to no more than three total pieces of luggage in the minivan. So if you had seven people, you got three bags. I think that that was because that's all the luggage that they had room for in the minivan if they were fitting seven people. Mm -hmm. The new terms that Disney announced is that if you have more luggage than three pieces, they will send a second separate minivan just holding your luggage to the airport with you in another car at absolutely no extra charge. So you will have an entourage on your way to the airport. I find this fascinating, Jim, that Disney had to come out and say this. Actually, has that phrase ever been used in the history of the Walt Disney Company before? At, at no extra charge? Yes. We're back in jumbo shrimp country, you know, military intelligence. <laughs> I don't comprehend those words being used in the same sentence as the Disney Company. It's funny, when I opened the email that had that announcement on us, I did detect the faintest whiff of sulfur. <laughs> as, <laughs> as if someone had sold their soul to write that particular phrase out. Wow. It was interesting. Okay. But I think that Disney will continue to work on this mm -hmm. because they're making tweaks to this program mm -hmm. roughly once a month, mm -hmm. which I guess is about as fast as a major corporation can go on a program like this. So it continues to evolve. I'm interested to see how it goes after this. The other thing that I found that was interesting, James, mm -hmm. was this. We've talked also about self-driving cars. Mm -hmm. A recent Disney patent filing indicated that to keep people entertained, in self-driving cars. They may project augmented reality or virtual reality images on the windows of the self-driving car to keep you entertained <laughs> while you're driving along Disney property. You're at the world's number one destination resort. You are surrounded by four of the world's biggest, most expensive, highly detailed theme parks, resorts, and for the five minutes in the car, you need to be distracted by augmented reality. Here's the thing. I remember driving with Hannah when uh, my daughter, when she was young. Yep. There were times when I would have done anything for a few minutes of quiet distraction while I uh, had to focus on traffic. And I think I would be okay with that. But yeah, you're right. I think they're, what's the longest stretch of road inside Disney property in which you don't see anything at all. I think it's one of the back ways to Fort Wilderness, maybe yeah. from the Epcot Resort area. There's a lot of trees. I mean, there's nothing wrong with a tree, yeah. right? But it's not as exciting as maybe seeing Iron Man flying along next to your car or something. <laughs> yes. No, really. Yes. These are what they're going for. Okay. I get it. The other thing that I thought was interesting was they said car, but then they said, or other vehicles. So I'm thinking maybe this could be a gondola test. As well. Okay. That's promising. But again, at the same time, I mean, it's, for example, you're in the gondola. You, you were 150 feet up. Think about how many of us as we're flying into Orlando do that ridiculous, put your tray table up and we're all looking out the window trying, do I see the Epcot ball? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> trying to get that glimpse. And here we are, we're in this vehicle that will allow us to do it and get those photographs. And no, we need augmented reality because God help us if we're not entertained for 30 whole seconds. Yeah. Uh, but I think it's another example of Disney thinking about what they're going to do with self-driving cars. I think to me, it just goes to show that even though they're not saying anything publicly about it, the paperwork that they're filing with the government 
indicates that they are thinking a lot about this particular area. So I'm encouraged by this as well. No, I agree. I mean, somebody's got to be on the cutting edge. But at the same time, I don't know why this suddenly has turned me into somebody who stands on the lawn and shouts at children. <laughs> <You know? laughs> but it really is hitting that switch. I, I'm interested in seeing it. Yeah. Wow. Okay. One other piece of interesting news that came out this week was a recent update to My Disney Experience. And now if you're using My Disney Experience in Epcot, and you walk past certain locations on the way to World Showcase, the My Disney Experience app will detect where you are in World Showcase and prompt you to play a game of Agent P's World Showcase Adventure. So that you can launch a version of the game from your phone and play along with all of the physical show elements in Epcot. And Jim, you and I have known about Disney's desire to do location-based prompts in My Disney Experience since back before the whole program was known as My Disney Experience, back when it was known as Guest Experience, right? Yep. We're, what, eight years into this thing now? This is, I think, one of the first examples, one of the first obvious examples of them using location awareness. I would have bet money that the first example of location-aware functionality that my Disney experience got would have been to try and sell you something. But no, I am wrong. It was to play Agent P's World Showcase Adventure. What do you think Disney's trying to get here with this location awareness stuff? For me, it's like, wow, we are now officially living Minority Report. By going with the more benign route, you know, the effect of, hi, we're entertaining you. You're sort of easing you into the bathwater. I mean, in much the same way as... Have you ever had your phone prompt you as you're driving along? And, oh, by the way, that store that you just shopped at. By the way, you're near it again, and here's a coupon. I get that with Waze every time I'm near a Popeye's chicken. <laughs> there we go. All right. Your, your thing works too, Jim, but for me. Yeah. <laughs> Waze not only knows my driving patterns, it sees into my soul. Oh, God. That's what I feel every time I get that prompt. But this is what this is about, coming very soon on the heels of this entertainment-based thing. And it will be a tolerance-based. Yeah. It'll take into consideration, I mean, face it, they're working off of years and years of people traveling to Walt Disney World and the information that's been gathered off of the magic bands and that sort of thing. They will know your shopping patterns. They will know, you know what you prefer entertainment-wise. And your vacation experience will, using this set of algorithms, be personally mm -hmm. tailored for you. Whether it's, for example, making you aware that, oh, by the way, on your last five trips, you went to go see Anna and Elsa, and there's a slot available at three o'clock, or that sort of thing. I mean, they're going to start on the entertainment side, but this will factor in your food preferences. For example, if if on previous trips, your last day, you've gone for that churro with that turkey leg, they'll prompt you. It's like, oh, and here's a coupon to take a dollar off. I think it's interesting that Disney decided to start with location awareness. And I think whatever Disney executive decided to go with Agent P mm -hmm. as the first location aware thing and not trying to sell you something, probably looked at Mark Zuckerberg's testimony in front of Congress <laughs> and thought, I dodged a bullet this week. Yeah. Because if Disney had implemented technology that tracked you, knew your preferences, and tried to sell you stuff the same week that Facebook's CEO was hauled in front of Congress to talk about privacy concerns, that would not have been, as they say, fortuitous timing. But kudos to Disney for picking the right thing to go with first. 
I'm interested to see if they do more of this. I think, again, it's going to be a test for Galaxy's Edge, man. You know, I, totally I agree. I agree. Now, more intriguing to me, though, is the way the timing on this breaks down, is mm -hmm. that Agent P is tied to Phineas and Ferb, which actually Disney stopped production of, I want to say, two years ago, three years ago. Mm -hmm. But interestingly enough, in the coming weeks, there is actually a crossover event about to happen. It turns out that Milo's Murphy's Law, the follow-up show that Dan and Swampy, the two gentlemen who created Phineas and Ferb's, did, they've always maintained that Milo lives in the same tri-county area as Phineas and Ferb. And huh. when the show comes back for the start of its second season in the next couple of weeks, they're actually doing a crossover event. Milo Murphy gets to hang out with Phineas and Ferb. Oh, that's good. Yeah. So Dr. Doofenshmirtz back in business. I don't know about Agent P, but we'll keep an eye out. I think that's an underrated show. I agree. But at the same time, these days, it's on terrestrial television. And who still watches that? <laughs> exactly. All right, Jim, we're going to move on to our main topic here, which is talking about, in chronological Disney terms, what happened between roughly 1995 after Indiana Jones opened and 2005. But before we do that, Jim, I've got some sad news. Mm -hmm. Mike Big D Fica, a longtime listener of our show and of the old WW Today podcast, uh, passed away a few days ago. Mike was a great guy. He came to our Disney Dish event this past November. Laurel and I had dinner with him and his kids, Emily and David, and we'd spoken. He and I just uh, spoke just last week. I'm going to miss him a lot. Very sad about that. It, it is. It, it breaks my heart. I mean, he and I got to hang quite a bit at the event in November, and it was always so much fun to chat with. And it just it was just sort of a shock. He'd been ill for a while, though, hadn't he? He'd undergone some uh, surgery related to weight loss. Mm -hmm. I haven't spoken to the family yet, so I don't know what uh, was going on. But he, he was making some effort to get healthier. Mm. And, uh, and it was it was still it was just a shock. But yeah, I'm very, very sad. Now, here's the thing. I don't think Mike would want us to be sad. Mm -hmm. So I am now going to tell you my favorite Mike Big D story. Okay, go. And I love this story. It's my favorite one about Mike. So Mike lived in Idaho. His day job was, of all things, assistant U.S. attorney. <laughs> and I'm thinking if, if you have friends, mm -hmm. that's the kind of friend you need to have, right? Yep. So he, worked for the, he works for the Justice Department. He actually led the Organized Crime and Drug Enforcement Task Force in Idaho. Again, the kind of guy that you want to know just in case. Mm -hmm. But Mike would occasionally get cases outside of organized crime. And one day he was asked to prosecute a guy for, of all things, poaching wildlife on federal lands. Because... Idaho, and that's what you do, I guess. I don't know. Things are different out west. Mm -hmm. So anyway, this guy was accused of catching and eating a northern spotted owl <laughs> on, I know, on federally protected, on federal, on federal land, and it's a federally protected species. Mike, Mike must have got all the great cases. So Mike calls this guy into court, and it goes to trial, and Mike's representing the U.S. government, right? So during a break in the trial one day, Mike said to me, his curiosity got the better of him. So he walks over to the table where the defendant's sitting and he says, look, I got to know, what does spotted owl taste like? <laughs> <laughs> and Mike said, he knew, he said he knew he was not dealing with the smartest criminal in the world mm -hmm. when the defendant answered, it tastes kind of like bald eagle, only gamier. Oh, <laughs> wow. Mike, <laughs> oh, okay. 
holy cow. Oh, no, that's a that's a great story. Mike laughed. I mean, he laughed when he, we told the story. And so that's how I choose to. That's how I'm going to remember Mike. Anyway, okay. all right, I'm going to take a break for a minute here and go compose myself. We'll come back and we'll do the main part of our show. Is that all right? All right, we're back. In our last show, we got to the opening of Indiana Jones, and this was a long-term collaboration between George Lucas, Steven Spielberg, and the Disney Company. And this happened in 1995. And you and I were reviewing our show notes after we recorded that show, and you were going over the list of attractions that Disneyland opened between 1995 and 2005. And Jim, I gotta say, it's a short list. No, it Basically is. Basically, for 10 years, Disney doesn't open very much at all. There's a very good reason for that, which, oddly enough, has to do with Eisner announced in January of 1990 this very ambitious Disney decade plan. And the weird thing is, Indiana Jones does, in fact, open March 3rd, 1995. And it's hugely expensive. It's over $100 million, but it delivers mm-hmm. the goods. It's the right attraction at the right time. And this is 1995. This is Disneyland's 40th anniversary year. In fact, just in case people didn't get the idea, didn't link the two, the subtitle for that anniversary year was 40 Years of Adventure. So whether you were going to Disneyland or not to see Indy, you knew about the Indiana Jones adventure. Mm-hmm. It does exactly what it's supposed to. That year, the anniversary year, Disneyland's attendance is 35% higher than the year previous. Wow, that's a huge jump. It is, it is. But at this very moment in 1995, the wheels are coming off the Walt Disney Company. To explain what I'm talking about here, we got to go backwards again. So January 1990, Eisner announces the Disney decade, and that includes the second gate at Disneyland. So May of 1991, basically 15, 16 months later, they announced the plans for Westcott, for the $3 billion park. We've done a show previously about that, if folks want to mm-hmm. hear about the layout or that sort of thing. And you have to understand, just prior to this, Disney had also announced that, by the way, we're looking to do something in Long Beach. But in, in March of 1992, Disney decides, okay, Long Beach, we're going to abandon that. We're going to focus exclusively on Anaheim. But again, at this point, it's still a $3 billion park. But then April of that very same year, 1992, Euro Disney opens. And as we discussed on our recent show we just did about Marvel and Euro Disney, Mm. there are three months in and they already realize that the resort is off to a slow start. So the very next year, because of looking at what happened with Euro Disney, that they overbuilt with the hotels, like maybe we should revise the plans for Westcott. Just sort of creep it in, make it that much more manageable. So, And Jim, did they, did they revise the plans because they were concerned about the financial situation of Euro Disney? Or did they think that the park just simply wasn't going to be popular? Like, did they think... Euro Disney didn't work the way that domestic parks work for us. We just need to save some money. Or did they fundamentally rethink the appeal of Disney parks worldwide? Was it money or was it like, we don't know what we're doing? It's actually a two-part answer because the first redo actually had more to do with there was this 
homeowners organization with Anna in Anaheim that really mm-hmm. had problems with the initial design of Westcott. Because remember, the centerpiece of this park was a 300-foot-tall golden space station Earth, mm-hmm. which even the Imagineers were like, well, you, you understand you're going to be standing at the hub in Disneyland and see what looks like. Do, do, do you remember the prisoner, the, the, the Patrick Magoon show, where the evil ball would chase people around the compound? Like that, but, you know, you could buy souvenirs of it. <laughs> okay. But, yeah, I mean, you would be standing at the hub at Disneyland and look down to the train station, and there looming would be this giant orange ball. Yeah. I always forget about that because Disneyland is in the middle of residential Anaheim. I mean, there's a yep. commercial district right it, but if you go at the back of DCA right now, you walk over one block, and there are homes. Yeah. Right there. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. There are. And so recognizing that maybe the locals didn't want to look out and see this shape. And also they jiggered the the layout of the park. So, for example, they basically drew a line down the middle where to the back there was like one giant show building that was... This was where the scientific wonders of Westcott were now kept in a giant show building. And to the front was all of the international areas. And the problem was, even with this redesign, it was a still a $3 billion park. And meanwhile, wow. in November of 1993, here's Euro Disney announcing that they have experienced a $901 million loss. And in fact, at this point, uh. they're losing $2.5 million a day. To give you some idea of the disconnect that's going on at Disney at this point, all right, that's the news that breaks on November 11th. On November okay. 12th of that same year, this is when Disney announced that they're going to build Disney's America in Prince William County, 30 miles outside of Washington, D.C. And for Wall Street, it's like, no, wait a minute, you're losing $900 million on Euro Disney, but you're going to spend $650 million on a park in Washington, D.C.? It's like, yes, yes, we are. We jump ahead just six weeks now, and three days before Christmas, December 22nd, 1993, Heister basically pushes Roy Disney out the door and you go break this news to them. And it's just like, uh, we, we, we may have to close Euro Disney. <laughs> I didn't realize it got that bad. Oh, it, it got really bad. And, and in fact, that exact same day, to give you some idea of the financial stresses the company was under, Kerry mm-hmm. Honeywell, who was the head of uh, Westcott, left the company. Evidently, Kerry had read the tea leaves. He had seen that with what was going on with Euro Disney, this was clearly going to impact Westcott. This was not going to mm-hmm. happen, even the revised version of the plan. So he steps away. Now, four days later, given that a lot of people are like, well, Kerry left, does that mean Westcott isn't going to happen? And Disney officials actually came out and said, no, absolutely. We are still going to build a second gate in California. The problem then is a story breaks January 15th, 1994, that the city of San Francisco, coupled with the U.S. Navy, they've actually reached out to the Walt Disney Company and said, hey, we're decommissioning the naval base on Treasure Island. Uh, That's a 400-acre island in San Francisco Bay. Would you guys like to build a theme park and resort here? And Anaheim kind of loses its mind at this moment. Oh, yeah. It's like your sister hitting on your prom date. I mean, come on. (laughs) Yeah. So it's like, are you kidding me? And so they call Disney and suddenly 
February 3rd of 1994, the city of Anaheim and Disney have come to this agreement. It's like, okay, whatever it takes to make sure you stay here and you make this damn park. And one of the things they agreed to was $750 million worth of public improvements. I mean, that's the garden district that's going to every hotel and store around the resort and going, by the way, here's your new limitations on signage and here's the materials you can use and that sort of thing. Yeah, I mean, color schemes, it all all got enforced. But they expanded the roads. They planted tons of palm trees. I mean, I remember going there in the late 90s, early 2000s, and that was basically a construction zone for the a couple block radius around Disneyland for years, oh, it, wasn't it? It, they, it was. They, it took them a long time to spend that $750 million. It did. It did. But at the same time, I mean, you you know, there were those of us who, you know, again, I'm, I'm weird. I, I miss the parking lot. I miss the kind of grimy, carny version of Anaheim. But it is, it's prettier it, and it's safer to walk around and all that. But anyway, doubling back to Euro Disney now, February 14th, 1993, debt restructuring talks begin and in the <laughs> year after it opens <laughs> yeah i mean now or this is 94 february 90 uh okay two days later here is michael eisner standing on stage at the annual meeting for the walt disney company and this is the first time he reveals oh by the way we're thinking of launching a cruise line and i know what's going on in paris and we're all disappointed but we are now looking along the Pacific Rim for other sites to build theme parks. And what's interesting is among the names that were floated mm-hmm. is Hong Kong and Shanghai. So that far out, they had identified yep. these possible locations. Anyway, it's a really tense period of time. Wall Street is thrilled about the cruise line idea and excited mm-hmm. about them going to Asia. But at the same time, you guys got to deal with what's going on at Euro Disney. So April 3rd, 1994. They get 61 of the creditor banks who at this point are holding 2.5 billion of the debt that was racked up to build the $3.5 billion Euro Disney Resort. Mm -hmm. So they all agree they're going to renegotiate the debt. And so this is great news. And so Frank Wells, who had been the gentleman who had ridden herd on all of this, he's like, okay, this is great. I actually have to go back to California now because I have to sign my brand new seven-year deal with the Walt Disney Company. Mm-hmm. But en route, I mean, he spent a brutal six weeks in Paris and getting this deal hammered through. So he's going to take a skiing vacation. He goes to Nevada <sighs> with his son. And this is the thing. Michael Eisner is home that Sunday night, and he actually gets a call from a Disney pilot who's up in Nevada, and it's like, Mr. Reisner, I hate to break this news to you, but I've just heard that Frank Wells' helicopter went down in the Ruby Mountains, and I, I think he may have been killed. And sure enough, this is what happened. And the very next morning, he was supposed to go into work and sign his next seven-year contract with Disney, and, and now suddenly he's gone. Huge void. Oh, my God. Eisner tries to put the best possible face on this thing, but he's destroyed. He takes over Wells' job as president temporarily. And in fact, what's interesting is the day afterwards, the company feels compelled to put word out. In fact, this is a quote from Los Angeles Times story, that there will be no change to any previously announced plans or projects, including proposed $3 billion Disneyland Resort project under consideration for Anaheim. It's a real credit to Frank that... 10 days after we lost him, again, everybody honored the deal. All 61 banks signed off on the deal. On the 11th, there was this amazing memorial service 
for Frank. And I think the saddest moment was Eisner was one of the last people to speak and he's, he's on stage. And it's like, this is the moment I'm angriest at Frank because it's like normally in this situation, he would have told me what to say on stage before I got here to talk to you folks. But again, life goes on. I mean, it just, it, the irony is not a week later, Beauty and the Beast opens on Broadway and begins its 13-year run. And then just six to eight weeks after that, Lion King opens in theaters. And that's Disney's real first Frozen. I mean, that thing made $766 million worldwide at the box office and became this, this retail behemoth and a Broadway hit unto itself. And the thing that actually had the hugest impact oddly enough, on Westcott and eventually Disney's California Adventure, mm -hmm. happened on July 1st, 1994. And that's when Innoventions opened at Epcot as part of the Epcot 94 project. Now, what was intriguing about that, this is taking the Communicore area and basically turning it into the Consumer Electronics Show in Las Vegas. It was a Consumer Electronics Show inside a park halfway dedicated to World's Fairs. There we go. But here's the thing. Eisner had... The year previous, Gonda Consumer Electronics Show had liked what mm -hmm. he'd seen. He turned to Imagineer Barry Braverman and said, I want one of those. And Barry turned around and called, just basically got the, the show exhibitor list and called all of these companies and got everything that came into the revised Communicore Interventions area for free. Everybody paid for their own booths. Everybody paid wow. for their own exhibits. And it was like, we got this massive new attraction in the center of Epcot for no money. And meanwhile, without Frank in his corner, without Frank reassuring him that we can still do this, we can, we can still get stuff done. August of 1994, the word gets out that, you know, those uh, 4,600 hotel rooms we were going to be building in Anaheim as part of Westcott? Maybe we're just doing 1,800. And then it's just this cascade situation starts to happen. August 24th of that same year, Jeffrey Katzenberg leads the company. September 29th, 1994, Disney, after dealing with brutal publicity and, and lots of Washington movers and shakers pushing back against it, they abandoned their plans to build that theme park in, in Northern yeah. Virginia. It's a rough couple of years. Oh, God, it's terrible. And October 12th of that same year, Spielberg, Katzenberg, and Geffen announced that they are launching Disney's competition, DreamWorks. And DreamWorks, SKG, right? Yep. I think it's just DreamWorks now, but yeah. Yeah, Eisner is very, very overwhelmed at this point. It just seems like during the summer where they should be celebrating, they've got the Lion King, it's making more money than God, but it's just, he's getting nervous and he's looking around inside the building. Well, who's doing something that's successful? Who's, where are things working? And oddly enough at this point, what's working is the Disney stores, which have grown from 160 stories in the United States at this point to 335 in eight countries around the world. And it's like, well, who did that? Well, that's Paul Pressler, the head of the Disney store. And especially at this point, looking at the bills that are coming in for Indiana Jones, and again, it's, it's really starting to go over budget. And it's like, I need somebody to get a handle on what's going on in Anaheim. And frankly, I don't know if we're going to build Westcott even with this lower number of hotel rooms. So it's like, tell you what, I'm going to take a shot. That's what I find fascinating about is now having Bob Chapek, the former head of consumer products, in charge of parks and resorts. Because here... 23 years ago, we had the exact same situation. Paul Pressler, head of the Disney stores, is now the president of Disneyland. He's not on the job three months before he reveals that, oh, by the way, you know that 
second park we're going to build it's going to be a lot smaller than you thought. Now, mind you, the very next month, people overlook that because, of course, as we mentioned, March of 1995, Indiana Jones Adventure opens. It's this huge hit. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, there are these rumors about Westcott is dead. Dizzy's just not saying it. And at the same time, remember, August of 1995, this is when Disney, clear out of the blue, there had been no indication this was going to happen at all turns and acquires Cap City ABC for $19 billion. I remember where I was when that was announced. I thought that was really, really smart move mm -hmm. because they got uh, you know, basically distribution for all of their content. Absolutely. But up until that point, the Walt Disney Company was theme parks. It did hotels. It did consumer products. It did stores. And then suddenly it's the second largest media company in the world in this one purchase. Two weeks after they do this, Eisner, who realizes, well, geez, I'm going to need help with this super giant company. I'm going to hire my friend Mike Ovitz to be my second in command. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. There's a whole other show on the Mike Ovitz thing. Yeah. So think about this. You've got Pressler on one side. You've got Michael Ovitz on the other side, whispering in Michael's ears. And meanwhile, the Westcott project is just spinning around the bowl because it's too expensive it's too ambitious it's that very same month august of 1995 that they have the first three-day-long charrette up in the mountains of aspen where it's barry braverman who's the hero who brought in interventions for no money at all and that's the thing it's like look westcott costs too damn much what can we do that's affordable and more to the point, that's a compliment to Disneyland that services the needs of this, that we need a new hotel. We need a, a downtown Disney. We'll talk about what happened at Aspen. And the real fascinating thing for me about Disney's California Adventure, Len, is this is the Frankenstein theme park. There were so many chunks, for example, of the original DCA that came straight out of Disney's America. The farm oh, yeah. area, the roller coaster, all of that stuff. It was just literally, it's like, hand me the corpse. I'll just take out what I want. You see that even today. There's the park that was originally dedicated to California monuments and areas now has a Hollywood land. Okay, fair enough. That's California. A Marvel land? Pixar? Oh, and by the way, I don't know if you saw the latest. It turns out that whatever they're building in California on, on top of a bug's land into the Hollywood backlot, it can be called many things, but it cannot be called Marvel Land. I didn't know that. Why? Is that, is that new? It's actually part of the master licensing deal. Jesus, is it really? There is language in there to the effect of even the naming rights stateside. The interesting thing is overseas, this can be Marvel Land, but just not stateside. You know that somewhere in that contract, Universal owns the rights to rename Stanley's kids. <laughs> It's got to be in there somewhere. We just haven't found it yet. By the way, uh, did you see that uh, Black Panther passed? Titanic is now the uh, number three grossing film of all, all time. Yeah. I don't know if you've seen the most recent ads for Infinity Wars, but man, the Black Panther is front and center. You saw that? Yeah. It's one of those things that say, yeah, 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 Iron Man, yeah, Hulk. Hey, have you seen the Black Panther? Have you got a preview screening of that film yet? Supposedly next week sometime. I know it's some friends have seen about a half hour of it at, at this point, the first half hour or so, and they just talked about how 
They do such a brilliant job of telescope. I mean, there's so many characters that have to be serviced and so much story yeah. that has to be set up. But again, this is a two and a half hour long movie. So it's like, is it really? Yeah. Do yourself a favor, folks. Get the small soda. Two and a half hours. Two and a half hours. Wow. I'm looking forward to, uh, to seeing that. All right, Jim. So the next time we'll pick up with how the, this charrette three day weekend ends up being Disney's California Adventure, right? Yep. All the stuff from whether it's Route 66 to the boardwalk versus the beach culture, all of the ideas that were thrown in the bouillabaisse base and eventually became <laughs> the theme park that they haven't yet finished yet. In fact, it just cracks me up that we went from the boardwalk area to Paradise Pier to now Pixar Pier to a pier to be named later. It's true. The, the park has gone through more revisions in 20 years than Phyllis Diller's face. <laughs> all right. All right. All right, folks, we'll uh, get to that on the next episode. You've been listening to the Disney Dish podcast with Jim Hill. We are produced fabulously by Aaron Adams. Please go on to iTunes or Stitcher or find a piece of leftover Viridian Dynamics stationery from the criminally underrated 2009 ABC comedy Better Off Ted and write us a review and tell us what you'd like to hear next on the show. For Jim, this is Len. We will see you on the next show.